When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we jump into the Birdshot Inbox. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 255. All right, welcome to the Bird Shop Podcast, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode. I've got a solo episode for you this week. Wanted to catch up on some questions to the Bird Shot inbox, so it'll just be me with you this week, and we will be back to our guest interviews come next week, lining up some good stuff for you as we move into 2024. I'll quickly thank Patreon patrons of the Bird Shop Podcast, those of you out there making voluntary contributions in support of the show to keep these episodes coming your way. Patrons are eligible for Patreon giveaways, some bonus content, and we get everybody the Bird Shop Podcast canned coolers and stickers. Got a few gift packs to mail out this week. New patrons. You can learn more and sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. All right, moving on. We are in the midst of our first real Arctic blast of winter this week. We've had pretty cold temps, and I know those have been quite widespread, so I know I'm not alone in the wintry weather. I was talking to Nick Adair earlier this week. I know they got some snow as far down as Tennessee, and those cold temps have kind of poured out across central United States, and that goes below zero in Nashville yesterday morning, which I don't imagine folks down that way have those kind of temperatures too often, but I guess we're all in it this week, and been a good week to stay indoors mostly, catch up on some reading, and again, still settling into officially the off season for myself. I know a lot of you out there are still hunting. I heard from some listeners down in the Southwest chasing quail. Chucker hunters are still at it. I, I, I am jealous, but I am keeping busy myself. I've got plenty to do, that's for sure. So anyways, I, I've been reading some books and coming across some stuff that applies to some questions that listeners have sent in recently. So we're going to cover some of those and we will do that during the course of today's show. First thing I want to hit on is on the topic of cold weather. I know I had mentioned in the intro, I think last week, that we had these cold temps coming and we really don't have a lot of snow. We have a little bit of fluffy snow that is now settled. It had just fallen last week, was deeper then. It's now settled down a little bit. I don't know if I would say it's even more than six inches right here where I'm at. And up to that point, 
it had been very mild and very warm and most people most grouse hunters are probably familiar with rough grouse survival in the winter having to do with snow roosting and what sorts of conditions are good for grouse and not good for grouse but that was kind of on my mind knowing that we would have an extended stretch of really below zero weather it's been like that for almost a week and we'll continue through about saturday and then we're supposed to warm way back up and be in the 30s next week and probably pretty warm wherever you are but anyways i was thinking about the snow roosting and i don't i didn't feel great about it about the snow conditions certainly the snow that we did get i thought would help but it's not it's definitely a far cry from the 10 plus plus inches required for really good snow roosting, snow burrowing. But admittedly, that is just me talking, the backyard biologist here. So I thought I would turn to one of my go-to resources when it comes to ruffed grouse, which happens to be a book written by Gordon Gullion, sort of a famed and acclaimed ruffed grouse researcher from this area, the late Gordon Gullion, I should add. He wrote a book called Grouse of the North Shore. I may get this wrong, but there's another book called The Ruffed Grouse that I thought was the same book and it was just a different title. Uh, it may very well be. I will hopefully be getting my hands on a copy of the other one. I have Grouse of the North Shore. Uh, if somebody out there listening knows if they are the same book and just different title, I can't remember the exact story. I read it somewhere. But somebody out there probably knows. I pulled that out and I went to the section on winter to see what I could find on snow. And of course, there was some great information in it. This is such a cool book. If you've never seen it or if you're sort of a rough grouse nut and you're trying to build your library, that kind of thing, um, this would definitely be one I recommend. It sort of takes you through the life cycle of the grouse throughout the year. There's some, there's great photography in here. I know he worked with a photographer, Tom Martinson. Don't know anything about Tom Martinson other than he took the photos for this book. And considering when this book was produced and published, which I can tell you was was in 1984, the year before I was born. Uh, the photography in here is fantastic. <laughs> People were not walking around with D DSLRs and iPhones taking the kind of photography we were today. So I can only imagine the effort it took to get these photos. And part of what made Gordon Gullion's research so interesting is that he worked on a specific forest property in this part of the world around Cloquet, Minnesota. And he really, really studied that piece of property and the grouse on it in depth. And his research performed there. We really should probably do like a whole episode on Gordon Gully. And I'd, that would be that would be interesting to me, at least. Anyways, he did a lot of research on that piece of property and gave us a really good look at the life of a ruffed grouse and some of the things, the factors and conditions and survival conditions that that impact that life of the grouse. So anyways, for today's episode, I wanted to just see what he had to say specifically on snow roosting to see if my concerns about ruffed grouse survival this week have any merit to them. Certainly, I think we could say in a perfect world, there would be 20 inches of snow on the ground and we would know that the grouse are burrowing and snow roost. That is not the case for much of grouse country around here. And I don't really see any snow in the forecast, significant snow, but we do have that warm up coming. So how much can one week of these kinds of attempts with subpar snow roosting conditions, how much can that impact and stress the birds? I would love to know if anybody out there listening does. I'm thinking of my friend Bailey. I'm sure she would have some thoughts on this. And again, probably better questions for a biologist. But again, for the sake of this episode, let's just read a couple of excerpts from Grouse of the North Shore on snow roost. Although winter can be a season for relaxation when conditions are good, it is still a season when survival is uppermost among rough grouse concerns. Survival means living in a habitat where the birds have an adequate food resource, protection from heat loss to the environment, protection from predation. Thermal protection can be of two kinds. The most satisfactory thermal protection available to North Shore roughs in winter is an accumulation of deep powdery snow. The snow must be about 10 inches deep to provide satisfactory burrow roof. There should be at least three or four inches of snow over the bird and the snow must be of such a character that it does not collapse behind a burrowing bird. A collapsed snow burrow pinpoints the location of a roosting grouse. A rough grouse snow burrow may be no more than a yard long, marking the path where the bird dived into the snow, roosted, and then burst out the next day. On other occasions, the bird may burrow through the snow for 15 to 20 feet, zigzagging back and forth. Since grouse usually plunge headlong into a snow burrow from full flight, a grouse is least likely to be injured if it can dive into the snow in sites where there are no fallen branches or logs in the ground. This is why snow burrows are often seen in trails and roadways and around the edges of open grassy fields. A recently burned forest where all the down branches and other woody material has been removed provides a safer place for burrow roosting 
than a forest where many down limbs and branches may lie concealed under the snow. I'm skipping ahead here. The second benefit for the bird in the snow is the relative warmth it enjoys there. The temperatures in the snow in hardwood forests in northern Minnesota seldom drop below about 20 degrees Fahrenheit, which is no colder than many nights here in early spring. A rough grouse in a snowborough is essentially spending its winter nights in a spring-like environment. This 20 degree Fahrenheit temperature figure is particularly important to rough grouse. This temperature appears to be the lower critical temperature for these birds during the winter. The insulation provided by their feathers becomes insufficient to keep a resting rough grouse warm when temperatures drop below 20 degrees Fahrenheit. At lower temperatures, the bird must speed up its body metabolism to keep warm. Rough grouse do not have the compact, dense plumage that characterizes some other members of their family, and therefore they are less well adapted for exposure to cold weather. Using snow burrows is their best means of coping with this deficiency. The white-tailed ptarmigan, on the other hand, has much more dense plumage than rough grouse, and their lower critical temperature is about negative 29 degrees Fahrenheit in winter, but they too use snow burrows as often as they can. All right, this paragraph is what I thought was the most relevant because this is kind of the situation we're in. When they cannot use a snow burrow, rough grouse will roost in a snow bowl or in a conifer. The snow bowl is where the bird makes a deep nest-like depression in the surface of the snow so that only the upper surface of its body is exposed. The conifer may be a balsam fir, pine, spruce, or cedar, while ambient air temperatures in conifer tree roosts are colder than in a snow burrow or even a snow bowl roost the overhead cover still reduces radiant heat loss to the night sky. So coniferous cover provides a grouse with some protection from heat loss during periods of winter cold. All right, and we'll wrap up with this. The ideal winter for rough grouse is the one we consider a tough. That is the winter when there are 10 inches or more of soft powdery snow on the ground by Thanksgiving and no rain above freezing temperatures until well into March. Daytime temperatures should remain in the 20s, dropping to the zero or sub-zero range overnight to maintain light powdery snow. So by those standards, we are definitely not having an ideal winter for roughed grouse. However, if we consider all factors in that we had almost no snow until the end of the year, really, I would add there that it was so mild and so warm that we probably had a lot of those nights that were in the 20s, as Gullion mentions in his book. So I don't think there was a lot of stress and there was a ton of food availability without that snow. So I think, again, my estimation is that that would have helped roughed grouse make it through about the end of the year. And really this this week that we've, we're having right now seems to me to be the first big stressor and or challenge for the grouse. And now if you look ahead and consider that next week, we're going to have above freezing temperatures. You're going to have that effect that he's talking about where the snow is going to soften and crystallize and then it forms a crust and just becomes less viable. Uh, it's not deep enough right now for the birds to be diving into it anyway. So they're either burrowing under, making bowls in the snow in which actually my dogs and I were running last week and Rose was on point and we walked up. I walked up and saw a grouse in a tree above her. So I don't know if she bumped it out of its little snow bowl or it was just sitting up there. It was about midday. But anyways, that bird flushed the tree and I looked around on the ground saw the tracks and sure enough there were two snowballs one right at the base of a little hazel brush and then another underneath the it was a, a little spruce tree with boughs and limbs all the way down to the ground essentially and that grouse was up against the base of the trunk in a snowball with the boughs of that spruce tree hanging over it. So that was, I thought, a great example of what they would be doing to try to find some thermal protection. And the temps hadn't quite dropped at that point when we saw that bird, but uh, it was interesting to see them using that kind of cover. And it was very clear that the bird was not fully under the snow, but in fact, just sort of nesting down into a little snow bowl and using that surrounding snow and the overhead conifers as protection. So I guess I've got my fingers crossed for snow. <laughs> I would not mind a blizzard at this point. We haven't had much of a winter anyways, and I don't know if we're going to get it. The projections seem to indicate we're going to have a relatively mild winter. Not sure if that applies more to temperature or precipitation or both. But I wouldn't mind getting on the cross-country skis either. And as of right now, I think you can get out there and do it, but conditions are not great. So a few tidbits on snow roosting for grouse. And I don't know if anybody saw this. I think it uh, it made the rounds pretty good. But I, in thinking about rough grouse snow roosting, I then wondered about other species of grouse snow roosting and Gullion mentions it a little bit in the book there but I thought about sharp-tailed grouse and really nothing came to mind as far as a an actual reference in a book or a video or anything about sharp-tailed snow roosting and at the time I thought 
it seems only obvious that they would if there's sufficient snow and knowing that they use obviously the open prairie habitat but also they are uh, a mixed woodland habitat bird we have them in some of the forested areas around here where they still have openings in the forest so knowing that i would have been surprised if they didn't snow roost and there was a reel on instagram that i saw this week that showed somebody flushing a flock of sharptails out of a snow roost and i don't know exactly where it was but they the comment in the reel said something like it being negative 35 degrees so it was obviously northern area somewhere and it very clearly showed the the sharptails flushing out of snow roost and you could hear the distinct chicka 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 as they flushed away so i found that to be quite interesting and timely and again i don't i didn't look into sharptail snow roosting or anything like that so i don't know much about how much they use it but again it only makes sense that they would and as we'll transition out of the grouse snow roosting conversation if there are any grouse biologists out there that have thoughts and or feedback or perhaps would like to come on and continue this discussion there's an open invite out there for you get in touch with me nick at birdshotpodcast.com Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. Okay. Let's go to the Bird Shop Podcast inbox and hit a couple of those. First email from Joe. Hi, Nick. My name is Joe. I am a high school teacher. I am also a new grouse hunter. Been interested in hunting for a few years. Went out a handful of times with buddies. 2023 was the first season where I went up by myself consistent. I also have been listening to your podcast regularly all year. I love the stuff you put out. Thank you so much for all the work you do. It has been so incredibly helpful to me as a new hunter. Thanks for listening, Joe. A few questions for you. I don't have a dog, so this season I've been hunting dogless, which has been very challenging. Sometimes rewarding and often really frustrating. I primarily hunt public land within an hour or two of a major city, which means the birds are pretty pressured. However, each time I went out, I was able to flush about six to 10 birds consistent. Given I'm out without a dog and in some pretty popular places, I feel pretty good about that. Also, thanks to your podcast, I think I've been able to hone in on grouse habitat pretty well. However, after I flush the birds, I really struggle to make the shot. They either flush too far out or I'm not in the right position. Also, I'm learning that I'm a pretty terrible wing shooter at the moment. LOL. Anyway, all this is to ask, do you have any advice for dogless grouse? My understanding from listening to your podcast is that you hunted without a dog for some time. Any insight you can offer? Also, have you ever done an episode on grouse or pheasant hunting without a dog? If not, would you ever consider doing one? I know I would be really interested, obviously. He's got one more follow-up question, but I will just say regarding dogless grouse hunting, that does sound pretty good to me. Joe, if I think back to my dogless grouse hunting days, I've got to go back a ways, I guess my first bird dog came in 2014. So really a decade ago, I was hunting without a dog and so much has changed in sort of the way I do it and how much I do it in having bird dogs. And I certainly would not go back by choice, but one of the things that I do appreciate about grouse hunting and makes it quite accessible for folks is that you can do it without a dog. And I think you probably can sort of come up with a lot of the, you can get to these forested places, you can get to the public lands. There are trails that you can walk. Grouse come to these trails. We've talked about that many times before. That I feel is a big benefit to a dogless grouse hunter. And when I was doing it, I was walking a lot of trails. Now, some things have changed even in that time period sort of the time period between when I was about 16 years old, got my driver's license and was sort of hunting on my own up until getting my first dog. And a couple of years prior to that, I started hunting 
with friends who had dogs. But that period of time was before a lot of us were using cell phones with Onyx maps and GPS tracking. Certainly GPS was available at the time, but it just wasn't so readily available as it is now with our phones and the service that we can find in some of these areas and what we can do with offline maps. Of course, you know all that stuff about Onyx Hunt. So I did rely on trails more when I did that, just kind of follow one in and follow one out. And I didn't get off the beaten path nearly as much as I do now and making bigger loops through bigger tracks of forest. I sort of took what was given to me, if that makes any sense. And I'm not saying that's the right way to do it. Today, you certainly have the advantage of being able to better keep track of your location, whereabouts, identify cover features on the satellite imagery. You could be a lot better hunter than I was today just by putting a lot of that stuff in place. And as Joe mentioned, he's been picking up things on grouse habitat and able to identify it. And I could put myself on a lot more edges today than I could have back then. So I would certainly do that. And it's really what I do now when I'm running my dogs, I am essentially trying to always put myself on some kind of edge or transition. And sometimes that's a large macro edge, a swamp edge that's very apparent and very visible. Sometimes it's a micro edge. If I'm in the midst of a stand of aspen, I'll be looking for those little seams in the cover. Where is there a patch of hazel brush here or an opening over there? Always looking for those little micro edges. And that I would do about exactly the same because I'm still trying to walk up and flush grouse almost as as a game that I kind of play in the woods. I just like, I like putting myself in grouse habitat and trying to put myself in the right place at the right time. So I don't know if that's a tip so much as how I approach things and how I would approach things if I was dogless. I would be trying to learn as much as I could about the habitat and how to identify it much more so than I did when I was, I don't know, 16, 17, whatever. I would approach it differently, but obviously I'm much older now and have a little different perspective on what I'm out there doing. So as far as other tips I would give Joe, I always thought that slow and steady with dogless ruffed grouse hunting, the slower you can go, the better. Because as you may know, a ruffed grouse is apt to sit still and hold tight as much as possible. Flushing is kind of a last resort. They will run, walk, or hold tight before they will flush and expend that kind of energy. And so with dogs, that's harder for grouse to do because dogs are much better at finding grouse than myself or Joe would be. So, and this has never been more clear now, having hunted with my bird dogs for a decade now, I I always assumed that I was walking past many, many grouse. And, you know, you could be 10, 15, 20 yards away from a grouse and that grouse is never going to move. You're never going to see it. You're going to walk right past it. I mean, countless, countless birds I walked past. So you're really playing the odds in that way. And that goes back to what I said earlier is much as you can identify what pockets of grouse cover look like and what grousey edges and seams and transition areas are and put yourself on that, everything you can do to increase your odds of walking into a grouse is what you're going to have to do because the sheer nature of the bird's behavior and what a two-legged bipedal human can do when they are out there by themselves, we are going to walk past many, many grouse. So walking and stopping, pausing every 20 yards, 50 yards, I mean, you you have to kind of, you can only be so patient out there. If you could walk five yards and stop and walk another five yards and stop, you have, you increase the chances that you will not necessarily burst the grouse into flight, but if you stop and you unsettle a bird, this is where If I ever had an advantage as a dogless hunter, this is where I felt it was. By going slow, slow enough to unsettle a bird and make that bird make its first move, hopefully not just bursting into a flush, but hopefully clucking or taking a step or moving something to draw your attention to the bird, to give you a little heads up that a bird might be there. Those are the kinds of things that can help increase your chances of success. And as Joe has found, Shooting rough grouse on the wing can be very challenging, and that is part of the fun, part of the challenge of grouse hunting. It's what makes it so enjoyable and so hard at times. So that's where I come back to. If you can give yourself any advantage by getting eyes and or ears on that bird before it flushes, that's going to help. And those other times when the bird flushes and takes off, as much as you can do to maintain your composure and make a smooth, steady, slow gun mount, something that I find challenging even to this day, the startling flush of a rough grouse is, again, it's the thrilling 
part of the hunt and it gives you an adrenaline rush that I think most grouse hunters crave, but it's part of the rough grouse's defense mechanism in making wing shooters lose their minds and make poor gun mounts, bad swings at bad shots. So that's just something that as much as you can work on your shooting, practicing that gun mount, working on the fundamentals to help you when you're out there grouse hunting, all of those things you'll find benefit in. So really as slow as you can go, Joe, I think that can help. And over time you will learn what areas maybe you want to move slower through and what areas are less birdie. Maybe you walk a little bit quicker through there, but you'll know, you'll begin to recognize and see those patterns, even subconsciously a little bit. I'm reading a Grouse Hunter's Almanac by Mark Parman right now. And I wrote down a quote from that book that I will probably bring up when I hopefully get Mark on the podcast in the near future about how you grouse hunt enough over time, you sort of develop these patterns of what you see in the woods and what looks birdie or or doesn't look birdie. And it's almost subconscious. You kind of see that and know that. And so all of that will come with time and the old boots on the ground thing, certainly with uh, a dogless hunter. It's an uphill battle in, in a way in that my dogs find and bring me to so many more birds now than I ever encountered when I was dogless that I just, I feel like my learning increases exponentially in that regard, just because you get so many more contacts and find so many more birds, but take your time and lean into that knowing the bird and knowing the habitat. I really think that's where you could really benefit and working on your shooting skills, of course, practice gun mount, try to become a better shot. That will help you. We're always going to miss grouse and they're always going to get the better of us and that's okay. But as hunters, we should try to educate and improve our skills continually, never stopping, try to be a better hunter each and every time you go out. And then Joe, his second question was, do you have any recommendations on good grouse hunting book? Anything that might help deepen my knowledge on habitat, food sources, grouse behavior, etc. Luckily for rough grouse hunters, there are a lot of books out there. One, certainly uh, Grouse of the North Shore, the book I mentioned earlier, Gordon Gullion, that would be a great book to read through. Um, There is some other more textbook style books that I don't have out here. There's the old Gardner Bump book, The History, Management, and Propagation of Rough Grouse. I think that book has become quite hard to find. It's a giant book. I've actually have not read through that one myself. A listener of the show and former guest of the show sent me his copy to read, but I'm going to have to send it back to him because I just have not had found the time to get through that book. There's another book that was recommended to me by uh, Ben Jones of the Rough Grouse Society. It's simply titled Rough Grouse, and it's by Sally Atwater. I do have a copy of that. That is kind of an extensive look at the rough grouse, its biology, life cycle, that sort of thing. Knowing the bird, I think, is always going to benefit you. Then you have the more hunting-related book, of which there are many. There's an old one that was written by Dennis Walrod. I know I had a copy of that and read it as a kid, but it's been a long time since I've read that book. That one's available if you go on Amazon. I'll try to gather up some links for this stuff and throw them in the show notes, so check there. That's one. There's a Frank Wolner book on rough grouse hunting. And as far as I know, I have read Frank Wolner's, no, I'm thinking out loud now. This would be a good one for the emailer, Joe. Frank Wolner did not hunt with dogs, as far as I can recall. And in fact, I think he even sort of makes some comments in his book about how hunting with dogs can kind of ruin the the experience, maybe not the experience, but make it more difficult that dogs don't help you. Uh, so having not read his book on grouse, I have both his book on grouse and woodcock. I've read the woodcock one. I haven't read the book on grouse, but check out the Frank Wolner books. That is probably one of the better suggestions I could give for a dogless grouse hunter. And then lastly, there's another book I really like called Grouse and Woodcock, A Gunner's Guide by Don Johnson. He was a Wisconsin rough grouse and woodcock hunter. Excellent foundational fundamental book about the birds and hunting them. You know, he goes into birds and habitat, the biology, but then also is going to talk shotguns, gauges, payload, hunting tactics, strategies, all that sort of stuff. I love that book. I've read it multiple times. That would be a good one as well. And then I will mention a book that the more I read it, I go back to it probably once a year. The more I read it, the more I love this book, New England Grouse Shooting by William Harnden Foster. It's quite well known. It's readily available, I think. I haven't looked for a copy in a while, but there also is a audiobook version now done by Project Upland that was put out sometime recently. I listened to that during the hunting season this year to and from grouse covers and that probably in November. It, it works well as an audiobook. So if you like audiobooks, definitely check that out. Otherwise, just grab a copy. I have a really neat version of it that 
I got from the Ruffed Grouse Society. There is just classic sketches and artwork in that book. So it's worth having a physical copy if you can find one. But that book is the more I hunt, the more perspective I gain. I learn, I realize how much I don't know and how long it's taken me to gather this information. And every time I think I come up with some sort of neat little insight or realization about grouse hunting on my own, which, you know, we all do that. We, we learn things on our own and we sort of pull, peel back the layers the more you do something and the deeper you dive. And that's fun. Every time I think I sort of come to some excellent realization about grouse hunting, I'll go back and reread that book again the following year and realize that William Harden Foster was writing about all of that however many years ago, decades ago, which is cool in a way. But all that to say, that book should almost be required reading for uh, aspiring rough grouse hunters. If that's your thing and you want to learn more about it, get your hands on a copy of that book or go listen to the audiobook version. It is, it's entertaining and educational. The There's some things in the book that are dated specifically around the gear there's a chapter on gear and talking about sort of attire and everything. That stuff's a little bit dated, but it's still kind of fun to read through or listen to. But the stuff about shotguns and gunning and gauges and payloads, all that stuff still applies. And he had so many great insights on grouse and grouse dogs that it's just full of wisdom in that book. And it's absolutely worth it. And there's this really cool sort of fictional hunt that he portrays between this old veteran grouse hunter bringing out a new grouse hunter with his first bird dog. And Foster describes this hunt and takes these hunters through this scenario. And it's educational because he has sort of, he's quoting the hunters and sort of the way they talk is really cool, this old New England style. So there's some of that comes through in the book, but he just walks you through these very common scenarios and how a new hunter might be thinking about things and how the wise old hunter has the perspective and the understanding. And I just, again, every time I read that book, I just, um, I come away with even more perspective and wisdom from that book. It just, it's riddled throughout the entire thing. So definitely, if you have not read New England Grouse Shooting, for me, it, it, it gets top recommendations. That's for sure. So with that said, I want to segue to another question from a listener, and I'm going to read an excerpt from New England Grouse Shooting that, again, right in line with what I was just saying, so many of these questions that we have in 2024 have been answered before. Sometimes you just have to go find the information, and that can sometimes be hard to do in the flood of information that we have today. However, a Patreon patron wrote in asking about shotguns. He said, I have a question about shotgun fitting. My Mossberg 12 gauge pumps are all about 14 inch length of pull and I've always shot them okay. I've picked up a couple of 1930s to 1950s European side-by-side guns and they have a 14 and three quarter inch length of pull roughly, which it turns out just feel better. This makes sense as I'm 6'2". My question is, why do the newer guns have shorter length of pull from the factory than guns made 80 years ago? Was there a change in the industry? Is it an American European thing or a pump versus side-by-side thing? Keep up the great work on the podcast. As an average shot, I love all the content on shooting. So to answer Greg's question, I think you could find different explanations on the length of pull stuff. There is a little bit of variation in the length of pull you might see on a single trigger gun versus a double trigger gun. The length of pull on a double trigger gun is typically longer because that front trigger is set further ahead inside the trigger guard. And then the back trigger is kind of where your single trigger gun might be. So you might have the same amount of wood on two guns, on a single trigger gun and a double trigger gun, but the length of pull on the double trigger gun is further ahead because of where that trigger is set. And so there's kind of a middle ground between how you set those up and somebody like Dell Whitman could walk us through that a lot better than I could, but there is a bit of that. And then with like the pull, you just see so much variation. When you get into vintage guns, you know, you really, you never really know, was this shortened? Was the stock chopped off? Was it, did it start with this longer length of pull? There's a bit of that. And, and to answer Greg's question, I don't exactly know why guns would be shorter today than they were in a different era. But I just, I think there's different thinking and theory around, say, a gun that has a longer length of pull and a higher comb versus one that has a shorter length of pull and more drop. I think those are kind of two different 
styles of stock shape. And, you know, today, a lot of times we'll see on standard American dimensions with single trigger guns, you see lots of 14 and a quarter and 14 and a half inch length of pull. I feel like you do see longer length of pull from guns coming from overseas. Italian, European tend to be 14 and three quarters on a single trigger gun and oftentimes 15 inch on a double trigger. That's kind of how we do our standard dimensions with Upland Gun Company. If it's a single trigger gun, it'd be 375 millimeters, aka 14 and three quarter inch. On a double trigger gun, we would do 15 inch length of pull, but we send in stock dimension build sheets for every gun individually anyway, so you can play around with that. But I've also noticed different gun fitters sort of like to fit people with a general length of pull. Some fitters use longer length of pull, other fitters not so much. There's variation in that as well. Length of pull is a measurement that it's easy to slap a ruler on a gun and measure it. So I feel like it gets talked about a lot because anybody can, again, put a tape measure on it and sort of measure their length of pull and say, this gun has this length of pull. But the one that has always intrigued me a little bit more are the drops and some of the variation you see in drops on shotgun and higher combs and lower combs. And some of the, you know, the old vintage American guns tended to have a lot of drop. I have a Fox Sterlingworth 16 gauge that has a ton of drop, too much drop for me to shoot. And it took me a while to figure that out. But with the help of Dale Whitman, I have since learned that I have no business shooting a gun with that much drop and I do much, much better with a higher comb, longer length of pull gun. And I knew when I was reading this question from Greg, I knew I had just read sort of a an aha light bulb moment explanation or at least some clarification around this idea of why these guns were made this way and why they are not so much today. I couldn't recall where it was. I went back into my copy of Bear November Days, which is a anthology of Ruffed Grouse Stories, amazing book, more so on the romantic passion side of Ruffed Grouse hunting, but there is a lot of good quality information in there as well. It wasn't in there. There's chapters in there by Brian Belinsky and Michael McIntosh that I thought maybe that's where it was. Didn't find what I was looking for. I recalled that I had listened to New England grouse shooting. I went to my physical copy of that, and sure enough, I found it in New England grouse shooting, the classic by William Harden Foster. And I will read just a couple of excerpts from that to shed a little bit of light on Greg's question surrounding like the pull and my questions on the drops. And I find it interesting because I've asked the question before and I feel like the answers I've got haven't been very clear or at least not as clear as perhaps this seems to be. And again, perhaps others out there more knowledgeable than myself might have an even better explanation, and that would be welcome. Email me at nick at birdshoppodcast.com. Anyways, on page 104 of my copy of New England Grouse Shooting, Foster begins with, when we discuss the boring of grouse gun barrels, we are thinking entirely in terms of ballistic efficiency. When we talk of the length of the barrels, we have in mind the symmetry and balance of the gun. Yet the grouse gun only becomes a complete unit when the right pair of barrels is wedded to a stock that not only harmonizes with them, but which fits the shooter who is to use the gun as well. Okay, skipping ahead. Most experienced wing shots know the length and drop of the stock that fits them just as they can recite the sizes of their hats and gloves. The length of the stock, which is measured from the front trigger to the middle of the butt plate, may be from 13 and 3 quarter inches, 14 and a half inches, occasionally a little more. The trend of late years has been very sensibly toward longer stock. Even now, many grouse hunters could undoubtedly profit by the use of a stock longer than they are using. One of the rules of gun pointing accuracy is that the shorter the distance that the butt of the gun has to travel back to seat on the shoulder after it has been raised, the better. The action of mounting a gun in grouse shooting is so rapid, almost to a point of violence, that any lengthy backward thrust of the butt onto the shoulder at almost the instant a quick shot is fired is apt to distort the aim. Shooters accustomed to unnecessarily short stocks declare that they could not manage longer one. With practice, they could probably learn to handle one an inch or more longer and would probably shoot better once they had become accustomed to the longer length. Okay, so that's a little bit on length of pull. And then we skip ahead to another paragraph on the drop numbers that sort of bring into focus this idea of a stock with a shorter length of pull and a lot of drop versus a longer stock, higher comb. Foster writes, the drops at the comb and heel of the grouse gun are dimensions that the individual only must determine for himself. The general recommendation is for as straight a stock as the shooter can possibly use. So I'm just going to jump in here. By straight a stock, he's referring to a stock that if you think of a straight line going from the barrels back to the heel of the stock, the more drop you have, 
the more that stock bends off of that straight line. So if you have more drop at the nose and more drop at the heel, if you're drawing a line over the barrels, going over the breech, and then turning down, you'll, you'll hear people say a big dogleg stock that drops way below that line of sight. That would be a stock with more drop. He is referring to a stock that maintains, that stays higher in the comb and uh, at both the nose and through the heel, as straight as you can be back to that butt of the gun. That's what he means by as straight a stock as a shooter can possibly use. But here is involved the style of gun pointing that the individual grouse hunter favors. Some have learned to sight close to the rib so that the mark appears on the level with it. Others prefer to keep their eye level somewhat above the breech and shoot up at the mark. The latter method is to be recommended because it gives a clearer view of the mark which shows above the fingers of the forward hand and proves a special advantage when a vertical lead must be given on an incoming bird. Since in all cases the cheek should come in firm contact with the stock as the only means by which accurate pointing may be gauged, those who shoot up to the mark will ordinarily find the need of a higher comb, that is one of less drop than those who do not. The drop at the heel is determined by what crook the stock needs to fit the shoulder when the cheek is firmly on the comb. The average grouse gun stock has a drop at comb from one and three eighths inch to one and five eighths inches and a drop at the heel from one and seven eighths inches to two and three fourths inches. It is always well to remember that the cheek does not contact the stock at the comb or the nose of the comb where the comb measurement is taken, but some third of the distance back toward the heel. Okay, this is where this is the paragraph that really highlights, I think, why we see some of those old vintage American guns set up the way they are with all that drop. Occasionally, a successful grouse shot is found who sticks to the old practice, now pretty much discarded, of holding his head up and, by the use of excessive drop, causes the rib to come in line. Many old-timers shoot guns of this style and from long practice learn to shoot them well. However, what we now know about shotgun pointing rather suggests these upstanding lads did it the hard way, and had they started in the beginning by getting their faces snugly down on a straighter stock, they would probably have learned to be good shots more quickly. And that is the paragraph that really resonates for me and Perhaps it's somewhat individual, but certainly I have found that a higher comb and straighter stock has improved my wing shooting far beyond what it ever was when I was attempting to shoot a gun with a lot more drop. And it makes sense to me in that if you get your cheek weld and that is consistent, ensuring your eye is properly placed and aligned down the gun barrels, gone through a gun fitting to ensure that gun is shooting where you look, that cheek weld is your anchor if we think about archery which I know very little about, but I know they're big on anchoring. Your cheek weld is your anchor. So if you can get that consistent cheek weld on the stock, that's how you know you're looking where the gun is going to shoot. And it's easy for me to see, at least, that that would lead to much more consistent shooting than conceivably kind of hovering your head over the stock as you would on a gun with a lot more drop and shooting birds. That way. You could see how somebody could get really good with a gun like that if they're that's the gun they shoot. They That's the method they use. They practice a lot. But without that secure cheek weld or that anchor point, you just open the door for more inconsistency, if that makes sense. So there's a little discussion on shotgun shooting, stock dimensions, some book recommendations, stuff that I find quite interesting and have been diving into recently. And I think we'll wrap up with just a couple more listener emails here. I got a follow-up email here from somebody that was writing in about our discussion around cold hands and cold weather shooting gloves and that sort of thing. I, I heard from a lot of people on this, so that was a kind of an interesting topic. I got tons and tons of glove recommendations. There's there's definitely some good ones out there and I'm not going to rehash everything and get into all that on this episode, but go back and check out some of those recommendations that I gave on last week's show. And I thought I would share this email from AJ. Nick, great podcast. Wanted to give you a quick thought on keeping your hands warm. I hunt upland in Idaho. I also ski and fat bike. So I've tried lots of gloves. I'm also a physician and unfortunately have Renaud's. My solution may not work for everyone, but I run an insulated leather work glove on my left hand and a non-insulated on the right with a hand warmer on the palm. The blood vessels are on that side, so it works better than the other side. I've done the sweatband on the wrist too, but find that it cuts off circulation too much with a couple of layers on. 
Cheers. So it's sort of a additional feedback and context on the little hack I had mentioned last week about putting a wristband on and then putting a heat warmer on the inside of your wrist. I think the socks that I was using on my wrist were not so tight that they would cut off circulation, but I had mentioned that sometimes gloves with, when you, ha when you have Renaud's, or think you do, those gloves with a lot of insulation in the fingers, any little bit of pressure around the fingers or anything that seems to cut off the blood flow seems to make it worse. So you have to be very careful in maintaining this sort of bubble around your hands to allow circulation to continue, but obviously we want insulation. So I thought that was a neat suggestion and perhaps would be worth a try. Hand warmer on the inside of the palm. I definitely got an above average amount of sort of feedback and commentary on that topic. So I found it to be an interesting one. The last one we'll cover, a quick email that I just got from somebody yesterday. And I'm glad this came in because I've had a lot of people ask about this. I'll read the email quick and then I'll explain. Emails from Adam Hiddick. This was a while ago, but you mentioned that you found a bark collar that you liked, but didn't want to mention on the podcast what you were using. Would you be willing to share what you use? Yes, I would be. Uh, I heard from a few people. I know I recall the conversation. I think it was with Justin McGrail. We were talking about callers and we maybe had mentioned some brand names or not. And we were going back and forth and I was referring to a bark collar. And I think he was thinking of a different one. And I don't think either of us were wanted to name a manufacturer and call out a bad product at that point. But somewhere in there, I was mentioning the bark collar that I had found and for whatever reason, didn't say the name, mainly because it's one that I found on Amazon and I don't know the name. It's a it's not a collar from one of the big manufacturers, the Garmin's, the Dogtra's of the world. It's a Amazon product that I will tell you on this episode of the show because I have continued to use them. And while they are not perfect, they are a pretty good bark collar and they do work for my dogs. And I have not really had any issues with them. I've, I've been running them for, well, I'll tell you. Let me look up my Amazon order real quick. I have had many, many people ask about these and I have shared this link to these bark collars many, many times. There was a time where they were not available. I'm just seeing now that they are definitely more expensive than when I last bought them. If you go on Amazon, prices fluctuate there. And I think I paid, I guess I can tell you that too. I only paid $20 for each of these bark collars. They were $20 each at the time. My total order was $43.52. Today, I'm looking at the same product. It is $59.99 for one. So they are much more expensive. I guess that maybe changes the value perspective a little bit, but I bought these on March 4th, 2022. So I've almost had them for two years now. They do run on AAA batteries, but they last quite a while. You're not going to be changing the batteries every week. Now, I, my dogs don't have them on all day or anything like that, but they do go on my dogs basically every time I let them outside and they're on and off the dogs multiple times a day. And I can do that because I'm working from home here and can manage that. But anyways, they work well. I'll put the link. You can read all about them. If you go on Amazon and look for bark collars, you'll probably find a hundred different versions. And I guess maybe the point of this would be that I will happily share this recommendation. They don't even like, it, it's the Befond, Befond, B-E-F-O-N-D is the name of this brand. I've never heard of them. I guess I'm giving them a shameless plug here on the Birdshot podcast, perhaps. They will hear this. They can thank me later, send me some new bark collars, even though I don't need them. Mine still function perfectly fine, but they've got just kind of have the right setting, the right response. They have a vibration, a tone, fairly easy to understand and set up. And you can change the sensitivity. So they're not, if, if I was to say one thing, using them for two years, I would say that my dogs are on the middle sensitivity. There's one, two, and three, I think. And the highest sensitivity one is pretty touchy. You can pair that sensitivity with the stimulation level. And they even have a level that is essentially just tone and vibrate. And then they have this progressive level. It's, it's very similar to a lot of bark collars that you would see, but I just find that with these, I'm able to sort of dial in the right settings that I use for my dogs and they just work. So they were a cheaper option when I bought them. It's definitely more, you know, you're looking at $120 for two of these, whereas I paid $40 for two of them two years ago. So take that for what it's worth. There's probably other options now. I'm, in fact, I'm scrolling down the page here. And of course, I see tons and tons of different bark colors on Amazon. And now they have rechargeable batteries. I might consider that if I was looking for a new one. They've got different screens and stuff on here now, but I don't know. It's just one of those things that if you need it, you need it. 
and you want something that works, I haven't tried any from any of the more well-known manufacturers, something that we might buy for our hunting and tracking collars. Haven't tried anything like that for a couple of years because I've had these and they work. So I'll share this link in the show notes. And if you're looking for a bark collar, I would consider it a starting point. I probably would go, if you're going to go to Amazon and look at these, I would probably look at some of the other stuff, just given the significant price increase that these have had. But if you do end up with them, mine have certainly served me well. So that is that. Okay. I think that's it for the Birdshot Inbox. We've got some great shows coming up. I'm going to be doing a bunch of recording here in the near future and got some guests lined up. So fear not, we'll be back to our interview show next week. If you have topics, ideas, guest suggestions, I used to ask for this all the time. I don't think I have as much recently, but I am still interested in that. If there's something you want to hear about, want me to mix in, please feel free to share that with me, especially if you have a guest suggestion, some kind of a subject matter expert or something like that, please share those with me. I would happily field those and curate them into the podcast lineup as I am able to. You can email me at nick at birdshotpodcast.com. Before we close here, I will remind you that Upland Gun Company, including myself, will be at a couple of trade shows starting next month. I'll be heading down to Charleston, South Carolina for the Seawee Show. Looking forward to that. I've already heard from a number of people that will be at the show and are looking forward to stopping by and checking out some of the shotguns from RFM and our Upland Gun Company booth and just connecting with listeners of the show. I was text messaging yesterday with Bob Owens from the Lone Duck Podcast. He's going to be down there. Looking forward to catching up with him. And then Pheasant Fest in early March. I will be there as well. Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So two locations where you can stop in and check out, again, shotguns from RFM and see us at Upland Gun Company. And if you're a listener of the show, always love to meet and shake hands with all of you out there. So thank you for listening. As always, that does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast, and we will catch you on the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.